Anyway, um, for our title, uh, message has two titles today, thankfully. <laughs> number one title is, I've come down. I have come down. And number two title, shall not go empty-handed. Shall not go empty-handed. And good morning to all the brothers and sisters on Facebook Live. Good to have you. Praying that the Lord will also bless you with this message. Okay. So we're in Exodus chapter 3 and we are going to recapitulate on some of the things that we have already spoken to and build our teaching from there. Israel is in Egypt. And there has arisen a king who did not know Joseph. And as we stated in the previous message, it was not as if what Joseph had done for the nation of Israel was not known or recorded. No, it was known, but the king did not feel obligated to what Joseph had done to serve his nation in the time of a great famine. But these things are not things that are happening by his own doing. He did not come up with that. No, it was God who was pulling his strings to keep moving the story of Christ to its appointed end. God is preaching Christ. God is preaching the gospel. Because God had promised Abraham that this is what was going to happen to his descendants after him. He was going to take them to a nation that would oppress them. And then afterwards, he would come and deliver them. The rise of this Pharaoh to power is the beginning of the birth pangs, as it were, to the fulfillment of that story. God is the one behind the hatred that Pharaoh has against his people because the time for him to deliver his people has come. So this Pharaoh began to feel unsettled with the sight of many Israelites. He did not trust their loyal to him, at least that was his charge. And thus he sought to find a way to weaken them, lest they would join an enemy and fight against Egypt. So he is appealing to some nationalism of sorts. So this is a preemptive strike on his part, but surely, as I said, it was not of his doing. God will use him to fulfill his sovereign will and purpose and yet still hold him accountable, hold him responsible for the things that God caused him to do. And this is something that a lot of people, professing Christians, don't understand. They talk about, oh, human responsibility and stuff like that. God will make you do something and make you responsible for it. That's Isaiah 10. He did that with Assyria. He raised Assyria and used Assyria to punish his people. And then he said, oh, I don't like the way that you punish my people, so I'm going to punish you. That's sovereignty. So this king is in the hands of God. He's doing exactly what God wants him to do. And that's what we mean by God's absolute sovereignty. There's going to be some debate, or there is some debate of James White with some other guy on God's sovereignty. I'm yet to listen to it. But I know that even a lot of the 
reformed people, even so-called sovereign grace, they will talk sovereignty, but they will try to remove the offense. I don't do that. <laughs> God is God. He's sovereign. He does whatever he wants, even if he doesn't agree with us. So the king sought to do what? Verse 11. Verse 11 of Exodus chapter 1. This is what the king sought to do, and it lays the foundation of everything that happens from this chapter 1 all the way to 13. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramesses, but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in the dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar, in brick, and in all men of service in the field. And their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Pharaoh ordered taskmasters over Israel, specifically to afflict them with heavy burdens to curb their population, but this to no avail because the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and God was the one behind it. Pharaoh is the sovereign of the nation. Pharaoh is probably the strongest king of the day, of the time. And so he is a type of God. God is raising Pharaoh that he may preach the gospel of Christ through him. For this purpose I raised him. So he orders taskmasters over the children of Israel, over his people, to oppress his people. Why would God raise a king who oppresses his own people? That doesn't sound like the God that a lot of people are talking about. Who made their lives bitter with hard bondage, hard labor, in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field, and not getting paid for it. In Acts 15, 10-11, you know the issue that came to the Jerusalem Council about whether Gentiles who were never under the law of Moses should be put under the law of Moses, Gentiles who were redeemed of Christ, whether they were supposed to also serve under the law of Moses. So there was a council, and this was the determination. This is what Peter said. Hear this in Acts 15, 10 and 11. Peter says, Now, therefore, why do you test God? By putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus, see the contrast of law and gospel. But we believe through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. To say salvation is not of law, it is not of law. And the testimony of Egypt is already building that understanding of what the Lord does to a sinner. 
slavery. And Peter says, our fathers who labored under the law could not bear it. And neither could we. And so we believe that if anybody is to be saved, it's going to happen one way, is by the grace of God through Christ Jesus. So Peter identified the law as a yoke, a burden. And that testimony, God clearly taught in the matter of Israel's experience in Egypt. That's why Israel was in Egypt. So God had Pharaoh put his people under heavy burdens to afflict them. So the taskmasters are the picture of the law, the taskmasters, they are a picture of the law with its many commandments. Because there was just not one taskmaster. The law and its many commandments are the taskmasters that demand performance every day. But the law will never be satisfied, not by the works of a sinner. So it will continue to afflict and put heavy burdens, impossible burdens on anyone who comes after it or comes under it. So you see, God is building the background to introduce to us Christ Jesus, to introduce us to himself, to introduce us to the demands of the law. What does the law demand of a sinner? The power of the law and the way of salvation from it. How does one come out of bondage? Sin and law are a couple that leads to death. And unless this relationship is understood, we cannot tell the truth on Christ. That is why one cannot just come and start making arguments about the law. Oh, the law is moral, so it is binding on the conscience of the redeemed. The morality of the law is not the issue that we are debating. We are saying the law does not help a sinner. God is building with this story of Pharaoh and what he's doing for us to have an appreciation of what the law does and what it demands. And I was saying that people say, well, you still are under the law because the law is moral and that's not really the argument of the gospel. The gospel is not saying, well, since you are in Christ, grace implies being immoral. So the argument is weak. I actually find it to be not in line with the truth. Christ is enough because he's God and he has given himself through the Holy Spirit who indwells. Also, Saying that without coming to terms with God's propositions to the matter, it's settling in Christ is to deny the gospel, and this is what I mean. When you continue to talk law and trying to impose it on those that Christ has redeemed, you're essentially denying the whole work of Christ because Christ came to fulfill that law. He came to give the law everything that the law required. Okay, so the law is a taskmaster. That's the point that we're trying to develop here. The law is a taskmaster whose demands have been settled in Christ. 
And so Moses is introduced to us as the one who was born of Levites. Both the parents of Moses were Levites, and he was raised by his own mother in Pharaoh's house. And we remarked that this was such a cheeky way of doing things by God, raising the deliverer of his people in Pharaoh's house. The very Pharaoh was oppressing his people is him whom God used to raise Moses. The Pharaoh who hated God is he who must supply honey nut Cheerios <laughs> and Kool-Aid to Moses. But why? Because Moses is introduced first as a type of Christ who has to be raised under the law, raised by his own mother, Jochebed, a Levite, and yet in Pharaoh's house. That's a very important gospel testimony. The Messiah has to be raised under the law as the son of God. The Pharaoh was seeking the death of all of the firstborn children of the Hebrews. It's very interesting to me that Pharaoh knows that Moses is a Hebrew and he has set out a decree to kill or the firstborn boys of the Hebrews. And yet he grants a special exemption to Moses. I'm sure he knew knew that Moses was a Hebrew boy. Why? Pharaoh could not do anything to Moses because God is he who was behind it. Moses must be raised in Pharaoh's house just like Pharaoh's son being acquainted with the ways of royalty because Christ, through being under the law, he still was raised in his father's house. Though he was under the law, he still was raised in his father's house, acquainted with all things of God. The mediator of salvation has to approach God. And the one who approaches God has to be one who has been raised in the house of God, who knows God. And so Moses is he who has to go and approach Pharaoh for the deliverance of his people. So God is defining Christ for us through the picture of Moses. Yes, Moses is a picture of the law, but also he's a type of Christ. When Moses was grown, when Moses was grown, He decided to go check on the welfare of his brethren and he saw an Egyptian abusing one of them. And Moses killed him and buried him in the sand. And we already worked the understanding that Egypt was a type of the world in which God's people find themselves. And in this world, they are oppressed by sin and by law because there's no sin apart from the giving of the law. And the Egyptians being relatives of Hagar, who also from Galatians chapter 4, was a picture of the covenant of the law, bring the other dimension of the law against God's people. So what Hagar was, God carries through with what Pharaoh does. So Moses, as a picture of Christ, comes to slew this Egyptian. 
who oppressed and afflicted one of his brethren and he kills him and he buries him in the sand. To say the end of the Lord, this is what Christ accomplished. When he came to see his brethren being oppressed, he came and delivered them and he killed that which was oppressing his people and buried it in the sand. But Moses takes off running for dear life because Pharaoh heard of what had happened and he wanted to kill Moses. So Moses found himself in the land of Midian with the priest of Midian and his daughters having fetched water for them, if you still recall from chapter 2 of Exodus. He fetched water for them. He fought those shepherds who were getting in the way of what is his name? The priests of Midian's daughters getting to the water and he watered the flocks. And now Moses is married to Zipporah and they had a son together. And that will take us to Exodus 2.23. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage and they cried out and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God had their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. The children of Israel groaned because of the bondage and their cry came up to God. So God had their cry and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And so that says the background of where we are and the understanding of it. And just by way of qualification, when the Bible says, and then God remembered his covenant, it's not like he was sleeping or had a memory lapse. No, he was waiting for the time that he had appointed to come and deliver his people. See that the deliverance of Israel was tied to his covenant with their forefathers and to their suffering. In the Abrahamic covenant, God had unilaterally promised to come and deliver them. And so here we are. Exodus 3, that will take us to Exodus 3 and all that was introduction with all its hiccups. Okay, now this is now to our message. Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. And that again tells us that he was a type of Christ who is tending the sheep of his father. These are all nuggets to define Moses for us. Moses continues to be defined for his mission. Verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. So we are told that the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame 
from the midst of a bush. And naturally, Moses was curious of this strange sighting. He saw that though the bush was burning, it was not consumed. How could that be? This fire was not the consuming fire, which we know God to be. We know that when God comes, he is the consuming fire. So why is this fire not consuming? This is my thinking. Because he has come for redemption. He's going to define for us his mission. Because he has come not to condemn, but to save his people. He is the consuming fire in the final judgment. When he has taken away all his people, when he has saved all his people. But just the presence of the fire also is telling us about the presence of God. That kind of fire. We see that with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. The judgments that we find in Egypt were just temporary judgments. That was not the final judgment. Those are just were examples of what is to come. But what is to come is worse than what is going to happen in Egypt. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 3. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Moses turned around to behold this sight and God called him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses. How did God know the name of Moses? Who told him? God had never spoken to Moses ever. God knew Moses by name from before the foundation of the world. So if Christ were ever to show up, he's going to call you with your very first name. He knows because the names were written before the foundation of the world. He gave the names. The parents are just secondary means or agents to the outworking of God's will and purpose. So that is telling us that God is a personal God. He is intimate with the details that are on your birth certificate. He is intimate with the details of your own hair. He has not just counted the hairs, he has numbered them. They have been ordered to them. One, two, three, and when number two falls off, he knows. So pay attention to the movement then of the names of the angel of the Lord. We were introduced to him as the angel of the Lord. But by verse 4 of Exodus 3, we are told that this angel of the Lord is Lord. And then we are told that he is God. So this angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord, is not an ordinary angel. This is not an angel in the same league as angel Gabriel. He is God. He is the angel, the messenger who mediates the presence of God. Let us hear him identify and define himself. Verse 5. Then he said, 
Do not draw near this place. Do not draw near. Moses is told to keep distance. This is important to understand. A sinner cannot just draw near to God. We know all the encounters that have been recorded in the scriptures with just mere angels. Mere angels did not talk like that. They refused worship. They said, oh, we are just like you all. We are just servants of God. But this one says, don't draw near. <laughs> don't draw near. A sinner has to understand that. That they cannot just draw near to God. We must understand that there's a distance between us and God. A distance that is impossible to bridge by something or anything that we do or can do. But how and why? Why do you have to keep distance? And how do you do that? Take your sandals off your feet. For the place where you stand is holy ground. And Moses is thinking, but I used to have my flock in this area all this time. What has changed now? What has changed is that holiness is in the place. Holiness is in the place. The ground is no more ordinary ground because of who is there. It is like Air Force One. When we talk about Air Force One, anybody who has some basic understanding, we know that it is the aircraft that was or has been modified to be used by the President of the United States. That's the plane that transports the President of the United States. And also, it means as long as he is still president, any plane that he gets on becomes Air Force One. Whatever plane the president gets on becomes Air Force One. Why? Because of the office. Because of the office that he occupies. Therefore, wherever God's put his name, that thing that place becomes holy. It becomes set apart. And so the redeemed are holy not because they've become better and sensible people, but because God has put his name on them. Because God indwells them by his spirit. They are holy. They are sanctified. Because Christ is in them. God chose them in Christ and he has redeemed them as his possession. That's the holiness. God is he who makes holy by his presence. Not by you doing things. There's no amount of doing anything that makes you holy before God. Impossible. So all believers are holy. All believers are holy. So holiness is not a state that one grows into through progressive sanctification. But it is a state that one is in because they are in Christ. Because of who possesses them. 
it is a one or zero proposition. You are either holy or you are not. There's no 20% holiness. There's nothing like 80% holiness. You're either holy or you're not holy. In the Old Testament, in the temple service, all the utensils and all those who were ministers in the tabernacle, they were holy. And yet they were still sinners. The utensils were holy, but they were not different from the ones that were not being used in the temple service. But God says they are holy, set them apart because they are for my use. So all those who are in Christ are holy because God has put them in the one who is holy. Verse 6. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he continued to introduce himself and said, I am the God of your forefathers. So he was not playing hide and seek with Moses. He identified himself clearly and gave Moses a lot of common reference points to help Moses with the understanding. To say, I'm holy, but this is how I'm related to what you may know. I am the God of your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Once Moses understood who he was dealing with, he got afraid. And he hid his face. For the angels though, the protocol is for them to cover themselves. Hear this in Isaiah 6. 1, 2, 3. Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And in John chapter 12, I believe, John tells us that Isaiah saw Christ. And that's him. This angel of the Lord is holy. He is God. And most sinners are ignorant of this God and they've never heard of him, the Holy One. They think they're just going to remain dead if they die, if and when they die. Or they'll just go to heaven if there's a heaven and that will be their next place of vacation. <laughs> So having identified himself, next he defines his mission. Verse 7. Verse 7. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. He says, I have seen the oppression of my people and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their sorrows. Pay attention to the words of the Lord. He says, I've seen the oppression and I've heard their cry and I know their sorrows. I've seen, I've heard, and I know. And no one 
had ever told God about what was happening in Egypt. He didn't wait for any of the elders of Egypt, of the Israelites in Egypt, to remind him. No, he knew. He saw it. And that is good to know. Because sometimes we behave as if this world is coming unglued. And that God somehow is sleeping and doesn't know what's going on in his creation. He knows everything that is happening to his people in Egypt. And remember, Egypt is a type of the world. He sees it. He sees the oppression. He sees the shenanigans that are happening everywhere and anywhere. And he hears their cry and knows their sorrows. He knows your sorrows more than you know yourself. He does. And that language is telling us about the qualifications of Christ as the high priest of his people. He is the high priest who is acquainted with all our sufferings, tested in all things, and yet was without sin. That's how he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses as a high priest, the God who hears, who feels the sorrow, and who knows. So God has seen the oppression, the sin and the law have brought upon his people and their sorrow because of it. The sickness and all these things he knows about. Sin and law bring about oppression. They bring about a crying and they bring sorrow. They do. Because you try to be a good person, but sin still comes and slay you. You make a resolution. We are already a few months, few weeks away from resolutions. Come New Year. Resolutions to sin the less. I'm going to be sinning less next year. <laughs> it's not going to work. Sin and law bring about oppression. That's an issue. That's what God is preaching. So what are you going to do about it? Now that you have come. Verse 8. Exodus 3. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. So God defines his reason for coming. He says, I have come down, and that's the title of our message, I have come down. If you're coming down, it means you belong somewhere up there. But who is this who is coming down? God the Father is not the one who has the history of coming down. The one who comes down to serve is he who tabernacled in the flesh. The coming down of this angel of the Lord is speaking and anticipating the coming down of the Logos, of the word of God through the incarnation that is Christ Jesus. I've come down. We're going to have a lot of foolish preaching in the next few weeks because of Christmas. A lot of foolish preaching about Jesus. People say, oh, the reason for this season which season? 
the angel of the Lord is defining for us why he came down. Not for Christmas gifts. But because of the situation that his people have found themselves because of the oppression of sin and law and death. That's why he came down to deliver them from that. John 3, verse 18. The Lord says to Nicodemus, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven. <laughs> that is the son of man who is in heaven. No one has ascended to heaven, but the one who came down. In the matter of salvation, there's only one who ever came down. Is the son of man, is Christ. The coming down of God happens in the context of salvation. The context of a deliverance of a people who are in bondage and through that salvation, God introduces himself. The angel of the Lord introduced himself to Moses in the context of redemption. So you cannot know God apart from Christ. You cannot know God apart from salvation. So when Christ came, his mission was defined as salvation. Not to do miracles, as salvation. Let's hear Jesus continue. In John 3, 14 and following, we did a message last week, I believe, on that, so I won't be expounding much, but I thought this is also important for us to tie things together. John 3, 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And that is why the fire was not consuming the bushes. He had not come to condemn. The world was already condemned. He came for salvation. He was not banning anybody just yet. So Jesus is defining his mission as that of salvation through the cross. Matthew 1, 21, And shall bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means God is salvation. So the messenger of the Lord means the one who mediates the will and work of God in the salvation of his people. And so we hear the Lord Jesus again say this. Let's go to John 8, 18. And we're going to go back into John 18 again afterwards later, I think. This is what Jesus' understanding of himself was. This is how Jesus understood himself. He says, I am the one who bears witness of myself. And the Father who sent me bears witness of me. So Christ was sent by the Father. It is not the Father who came. It is the Son who came. He was sent. And being sent there is the idea of messenger, is the idea 
of angel in respect of Christ. He is the angel, the sent one of God. John 5, 36. Jesus says, But I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. The works that Christ did bore witness that he is the messenger of God. He is the angel of the Lord to do the works given him by the Father. John 12, 49. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command what I should say and what I should speak. And he speaks of salvation. This is the messenger of the Lord whom Moses met at the burning bush. And he speaks or bears the testimony of the Father's will and mission. Came to complete that mission. The mission of salvation. That is why the last words of Jesus on the cross were, it is finished. If you have been sent on an errand, if you have been sent on a mission, you have to come back and report. And Jesus is praying in John 17 and saying, Father, I have finished the work that you've given me to do. I have finished. So the work was finished. That's the gospel testimony. And anything contrary to that is a denial of the testimony of Jesus. And that's what a lot of preachers are doing. They keep pointing you back to yourself and say, oh, there's something in you that you can do to make yourself acceptable before God, to progress in this matter of salvation. You can't progress in salvation. It's either Christ did it or he did not. Now, to Moses' commission, verse 9 of Exodus 3, the commission of Moses to this work. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. So, he reiterated the problem that had occasioned his coming down, the oppression of his people. In other words, their salvation. And he says, verse 10, Come now, therefore, and I'll send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel. He identifies his people. He identifies the mission for Moses, to bring out of bondage, my people. That's election. Out of Egypt, out of their oppression, out of the covenant of the law, out of sin, death, and condemnation. Christ came to bring out a people from one place to another. There has to be movement. If you're hearing the true gospel, you can't remain in Egypt. You can't remain in Moses. There has to be movement from this place of oppression to a place of milk and honey. Come now, Moses. On account of this matter, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people. Moses is being sent to Pharaoh as a messenger of the Lord God to deliver a people. And that is a type of Christ. 
Moses was appointed to this. He did not choose it. No one chooses anything in God's business. <laughs> it is imposed on you because Moses is going to have a lot of objections. If he had free will, you would have said, of course, I've been waiting for this. <laughs> Moses was not warm to the idea of going to Pharaoh. But this defines exactly what Jesus came to do to accomplish salvation for his people. Verse 11 of Exodus 3. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I to do this work of salvation? Check your resume. Who are you to help Jesus in salvation? People say, oh, you help God. Sanctification is synergistic. You, you and God help each other. Moses says, who am I? Moses ponders the immensity and the risk of the mission and says, no, God, this is not going to work. Not me. I am not qualified. And that's the truth. I am cool here just hanging out with my father-in-law in Midian. It's, it's really nice here in Midian. But God said, verse 4, to answer to that objection, I will certainly be with you and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain, on Mount Horeb. God promises to be with Moses on this mission. God Sorry, Moses was not going to do such an undertaking by his own power, impossible. He already knows or already knew what Pharaoh was all about. But Moses is not yet done. Verse 18. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Moses says, I need more details. Give me some more information. When I get to the children of Israel and I tell them about the God of our forefathers who has sent me and they ask me, what is his name? <laughs> what shall I tell them? I'm sure the, the children of Israel have been exposed to all different gods that were found in Egypt. Egypt had a pantheon of gods that they worshipped. They had names to all their false gods and this one also ought to have a name. You have to give me a name. I can't just go. So Moses thought. Verse 14. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, that is a very interesting response to me. I am who I am is not the name that Moses was expecting. It does not sound like a name to me. It sounds like a refusal to give a name. If a cop were to stop you for a traffic violation, they ask your name, like, I am. I am who I am. He would not take that for an answer. Your teacher would give you a spanking for that. 
But God means exactly that. I am who I am. And this title and designation caused someone trouble. Let us hear this conversation. Let's go to John 8. <laughs> it caused someone trouble. John 8, 51 to 59. The Lord is talking with the Jews about himself, about his mission to set them free. And they don't like the idea of being set free. They say, oh no, we don't need to be set free. We have never been to bondage to anyone. Liars, they were in Egypt. Liars, they were under Rome. But Jesus again is speaking in the context of the Exodus experience. I've come to set you free. Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of what happened in the Exodus. Come to me for your salvation. The one whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And say, oh no, we are the children of Abraham. Like, well, if you were the children of of Abraham, you also are in bondage. (laughs) But that was only in the flesh. Let's hear the conversation from verse 51 of John 8. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Wow, that's such a huge claim. That's a huge claim. If anyone claims that they have to be insane, there's no way anybody has the right to say that. If anyone keeps my word, he shall not see death. It means if anyone believes what I'm saying. That's what Jesus is saying. If you believe my testimony about myself, you shall never see death. You shall never be condemned. Then the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. You're crazy. You're demon-possessed. And they're saying, God, you are demon-possessed. To say, God, you're possessed by one of your creations, one of your creatures, a demon. Abraham is dead and the prophets, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never test death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead? And the prophets are dead. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Who are you? Who makes all these outlandish statements and claims? Verse 54, Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and he was glad. He was happy to see my day. Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Look at you, Jesus. You are not even 50 years old. Look at your birth certificate. And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was this seemingly younger than 50 years old, says I am. And this is the response of the Jews to that. Verse 59. Then they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. 
going through the midst of them and so passed by. Question. Why did the Jews pick up stones to try and stone Jesus? Because of the claims. I am. I am. This conversation was not going good. And Jesus was purposefully flaming the flames to drive the Jews crazy. Remember John's opening in John chapter 1. John has opened his gospel by giving us an overview of his message. The theological understanding of John is all in John chapter 1. That's a summary understanding of the whole book of John. But now, John is expanding that testimony. With every chapter, John is expanding chapter 1. And for the benefit of, I don't know of any professing Christian who doesn't know of John 1 verse 1 to 5, but we'll read it anyway. (laughs) This is what John has said. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of man, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The darkness did not overcome it. So John is continuing to prove to us that this Jesus is the word of God made flesh. In other words, he is God. And the Jews are very aware of Exodus chapter 3 verse 14. Because of all the holidays, the feasts that the Jews had, there was no feast more important than the Passover. So they are very aware of Exodus. They know that conversation between Moses and God. And Jesus comes and says, well, before Abraham was, I am. (laughs) Not I was. No, I am. And the Jews, understanding the implication of Jesus' statement, they picked up stones to try and stone him for blasphemy, for being a man, but calling himself God. But they do not understand the theology of the burning bush. They do not understand the teaching of I have come down theology. I am who I am. And that is Yahweh. I am who I am. And this is God by that name speaking of his self-existence. The God who exists because of himself. That's crazy. That is the most amazing thing that I've ever tried to think about and still not get a solution. Just the self-existence of God that he has always been. I don't care how long back you go. He was there. The God who does not need anything, which is not himself and is not in himself. The great I am. God does not need anything. He has never needed anything. Salvation is not because he needed anything. Salvation is a display of who he is. He's displaying his power, his glory, his majesty. It's a display. 
of glory, holiness, righteousness. It's not needing anything. And this name of Yahweh, this name of I am that I am, God used also in other conversation to relate to other things. This name is very important to our understanding of salvation. Let's go to Exodus 6. Verse 6 and 7. Exodus 6, verse 6 and 7, God says, Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. So he defines how his name relates to his work. I'll bring you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. You see the I, 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 I. He will do it because he is the I am that I am. This is what defines who he is when he does salvation by himself that defines and separates him from any other God. I'll bring you out. I'll rescue you from their bondage. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I'll take you, verse 7, I'll take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you shall know, then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In salvation is the only way for you to know that God is God. That you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Do you think God is really concerned about the Egyptians? Because the Egyptians right now are not the strongest nation on planet Earth. So do you think God is really concerned about the Egyptians? No. He's speaking of something greater. He says, you're going to know me when I deliver you. I will. I will. I will. Not you. And if God fails to redeem the burdens of the Egyptians, if God fails to redeem from the burdens of the Egyptians, from sin, law, and death, then he is not different from the false gods of Egypt. He cannot be trusted for your salvation. The I am that I am, the Lord also represents himself this way. The first case was God as the one who redeems. Yahweh who redeems, the God who saves. And now he says, the Lord who is merciful. Let's go to Exodus 34, 5 to 7. Exodus 34, 5 to 7. Moses says, Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So he proclaimed his name. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. 
God does not forgive sin just to forgive sin. That's what he's saying. But how can he be gracious and merciful and not forgive sin? Those don't seem to go together. He says, I'm gracious. I'm long-suffering. I'm merciful. But I don't forgive sin. What? Because he forgives sin through Christ. God is saying he will be merciful and gracious on account of another, on account of Christ. Your sin still has to be paid. Someone has to pay. So Christ is the only basis by which God can be those things. God can be merciful and gracious because of Christ. That's how he forgives sin. Apart from Christ, there's no clearing of guilt. Apart from Christ, you're still in your sins. But remember, Moses had two objections to this commission. Number one objection was of ability. I cannot do this. And the second objection was of authority. Who am I to go and say this to your people and to Pharaoh? Here, this Exodus 3, 15. God continues to make his arguments to Moses. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel. Now, this is the message to the children of Israel. The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. So verse 15 is an answer to the second objection of authority. A reference that the children of Israel would have been aware of about their forefathers. And he says, remind them that God who dealt faithfully. Remind them of that God who dealt faithfully with their forefathers. That is his name. And is to be remembered by them that way. Now, having apprised Moses of his mission, and which God he was dealing with, God has identified himself to, to Moses. Moses now receives instructions to the elders of Israel. See the movement of the conversation. We began the chapter with God introducing himself to Moses, identifying himself as God, answering the objections to Moses' commission. Moses saying, no, I can't do that. Now he has a word to the children of Israel as a whole group and says, you tell them that the God of your forefathers has sent you. But now specifically, to the elders of Israel, this is what you want to tell them. Verse 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. He has seen it. And I have said, I'll bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey, 
God knows about the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Perizzites. <laughs> the Perizzites know nothing about God, but he knows. So the message to be delivered to the elders of Israel was about the redemption of the people of Israel and the promise to get a much better habitation for them, a better and fruitful land flowing with milk and honey. And that is faithful gospel preaching. See what God has done. When you go to the elders of Israel, you speak to them about the problem for which I have come. The identity, my identity. Speak to the problem, the oppression of sin and death, and the deliverance from it, and that by God's doing. That's the message of the gospel. What's the issue? Define the issue. The oppression because of sin. The condemnation because of sin. And then the solution. Christ has come down to deliver from that. You go and tell the elders of Israel. You go tell the preachers that this is how you ought to preach the gospel. Because if you're not telling people about the real issue of sin and oppression and bondage, you could never faithfully preach Christ. Never. You could have children's ministry, YMCA, collecting food and stuff like that. Setting out people, missionaries who know not the gospel in the name of Jesus. God says about the elders, verse 18. Then they will heed your voice and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt. And you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now, please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. The message was delivered to Pharaoh, or was to be delivered to Pharaoh, about letting God's people free and sacrifice to the Lord God in the wilderness. These people have been under slavery, serving Pharaoh and building cities for Pharaoh. But now they ought to come out on a three-day journey and sacrifice to their God. Why say that? Because God is rehearsing the matter of how those in bondage will be set free. If you left Pharaoh, you come and you make a sacrifice for your salvation, for your freedom. If they shall be set free, it shall be based on a sacrifice offered to their God. Remember, they have not been doing this in Egypt for more than 400 years. And God is bringing them back to the cross, bringing them to Christ. That is how their God is to be worshipped. Essentially to say, your freedom is not going to come apart from something dying. Verse 19. But I'm sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. 
God says the king of Egypt is going to be stubborn. I'm going to make him stubborn. Why make him stubborn if you want him to let your people go? He will not let the people go. Not even by a mighty hand of force. He is going to double down. Even with God multiplying his judgments against him. Verse 20. In the wake of that, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I'll do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. So God will then do this second installment of wonders. And after that, Pharaoh would let the people go. So Pharaoh cannot let the people go until God is done with what he wants to show. Pharaoh is not in charge of anything. His refusal to let the people go is not caused by his own power. It is not caused by his own stubbornness. Because Pharaoh cannot have, cannot be that stubborn to overcome the power of God. It's impossible. God is he who is hardening him until the story of Christ is done preaching in Egypt by way of the Passover. God is drawing everything to the Passover. So Pharaoh cannot prematurely free God's people. If Pharaoh lets the people go from the first judgment, there's no Passover lamb. And the matter of how a sinner is set free from bondage is not preached. God is preaching that there's only one way to set a sinner free. And so Pharaoh's heart has to be hardened. He can't just let the people go. So after God's judgments, Pharaoh will let the people go. But this is what God will do in the work of that. Verse 21. And I'll give these people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed. God will grant favor in the sight of the Egyptians during their time of calamity, during their time of suffering. His people shall not leave the land of their slavery empty-handed. You shall not go empty-handed. What will happen then? How do you propose to do this thing? Verse 22. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Every woman of the Israelites was to ask of her neighbor, of her who dwells near to her house. <laughs> you need a neighbor who dwells near to your house to get these things. Ask for what? Ask for articles of silver, of gold, and clothing. And then do what with them? Why not ask for their cell phones? Put them on your sons and daughters. Clothe your sons with the spoils of war, of my war. Do you see what is happening? God is speaking to a people who are in bondage to sin. And, and he says, 
when he comes to deliver his people, through the manner of the sacrifice that shall be offered by way of the Passover, they shall come out of that slavery with something. If the Christ is come at the Passover, his people are not going to leave this land of slavery to sin and death empty-handed. That defines the mission of Christ. His people do not leave the land of their slavery with nothing in their hands. They come out with something, some silver, gold, and clothing. Clothing for what? To cover their children. To cover their children. To cover their sons and daughters. And that is righteousness. That is righteousness. Let's go to First Peter. First Peter 17 to 21. Peter says, And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves through the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. And those were the qualifications of the Passover lamb. Without blemish and without spot, looking to Christ, he indeed was foreordained, that is Christ, before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. That's why Jesus said, the angel of the Lord said, I have come down. He wasn't doing anything new. He was foreordained from before the foundation of the world to bring this message and to accomplish this work. Everything looking to the redemption that is in his blood. But it was manifest in these last times for you who through him Believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So the silver and gold and the clothing items, articles were only types of the spiritual benefits that we now possess in Christ. Because where there's redemption, there has to be blessing with it. You don't come out of Egypt with empty hands. That gospel is false. They get things that they did not work for. The children of Israel did not work for those things. They just asked for them and they got them. That's grace. The Lord said, you go and ask and get these things from your neighbors. The one nearest to you. Who is in this picture of the neighbor who is near to us? Who gives things freely to those who have been in bondage? This neighbor. Ephesians 4, 7 and 8. Paul says, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. The neighbor who freely 
and easily gives things to his people is none other than Christ Jesus. They did not work for these things. They did not work for these things. So, what are we to understand? And that takes us back to the things that we spoke at the very beginning. We are saying that the Lord Jesus came on a particular mission. He came under a particular context with a particular work to do. He came to people, his people who were under bondage, a bondage that was imposed on them by God. That God may come by way of Christ to redeem them and introduce himself to them. And those pictures of oppression and slavery are speaking to sin, to what sin has done to his people, speaking to what the Lord does to those who are sinners. But in delivering his people, he did not leave them empty-handed. He did not leave them poor. He made them rich. Even though all these years they've been laboring for nothing under Pharaoh, he has given us, his people, many articles of silver and gold and clothing. He has freely blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places with Christ and in Christ. We are lacking nothing. I shall not leave this place empty-handed and everyone who believes shall not leave this place empty-handed. Not because of anything that they do, but because of Christ, because of grace. Many preach such a gospel that says, oh yeah, it's possible to be in Christ and leave this place empty-handed. No. <laughs> Christ says no. He has given us his Holy Spirit as a seal and guarantee of all the blessedness that we have in him. Christ has given us all those things. And that is how we find ourselves in the testimony of what happened in Egypt. And that is a wonderful gospel testimony that I pray that the Lord will continue to give people ears ability to hear. Because if we don't define these things correctly, we can get lost very, very quickly and miss all the wonderful things of Christ. Okay? So this is a wonderful message that the Lord has given us and it is free. Okay, we are done. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless you. We thank you for all that you have done. We thank you for this day. We thank you for the message that we have been given from Exodus chapter 3 of the coming down of the angel of the Lord who identified himself as holy, as I am that I am. We have seen the affliction and has had and saw the sorrow of his people who are in bondage in Egypt, in bondage to sin and law and death and has come to set them free. And he has set them free by the offering of himself on the cross. And now we have all these articles 
of silver and gold and clothing the righteousness of Christ and they've been blessed in the heavenly places with every spiritual gift. We thank you, Lord, for this message. We pray that you continue to expand the understanding of this testimony of Christ as we go into chapter 4 of Exodus. We honor you for all those who listened. I pray that you bless them also. We honor you. We bless you in Jesus' name. We pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry for the hiccup. It's technology. That's why salvation is by grace. <laughs>